0: All right, guys, Uh, Ecclesiastes 5, Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 5, from the very beginning of this book, Solomon has been uh, writing about life as it is both experienced and observed, as we've mentioned, Uh, life under the sun, or we might say life outside of the Garden of Eden, Uh, and yet life this side of eternity. And uh, Solomon's um, sort of refrain throughout this particular book is uh, vanity of vanities. Uh, All is vanity, which in one sense means that life is is fleeting, that it's uh, very transitory, it's it's very temporal. Uh, Not only that, but uh, Solomon also emphasizes the fact that life is puzzling and perplexing. Uh, That is to say that there are some things... That we see and experience in life, and we, we try to connect the dots. We try to make sense of, of all that we see and experience, but we, but we, for one, don't know how to always interpret the data that we have. Uh, we see various patterns and cycles, uh, but we also see the anomalies. We see the exceptions. We see the, um, the irregularities, and, and we sometimes scratch our heads. And even as Christians... Uh, with God's infallible word, we still don't have all the answers that we seek, which of course is meant to to drive us to trust the Lord and to walk by faith. Uh, but when Solomon says all is vanity, there's something else that he intends to communicate, and that is the reality that in light of the curse of sin, that life is also futile. Uh, it, it lacks substance. It, it leaves us feeling uh, empty. And this is undeniably the experience of every person that doesn't know Christ, Uh, every person that refuses to acknowledge Christ as the creator, as the king, as the controller of all things, as the judge, uh, every person that lacks a biblical worldview or every person that lives with a completely secular perspective uh, experiences this sense of meaninglessness or, or hopelessness or Uh, emptiness. And many times, sadly, but even in our own experience, right? I mean, even uh, even as God's people, we also experience that when we sometimes, I guess, expect to find in our homes or in our food or in our jobs or in our relationships or our activities something that only God can provide. So we even fall into that trap sometimes, and we experience that same same emptiness or that same futility. So it's it's a universal problem, this futility, this meaninglessness, this disappointment, uh, empty achievements and we witness this in various uh, sectors of life. So beginning back in chapter 3 verse 16, Solomon has demonstrated this by taking us on a tour if you will and sharing his observations. Uh, he has taken us to the courtroom where injustice, and bias prevail. He has taken us into the marketplace where people are tirelessly attempting to climb the ladder of success, uh, where competition and and rivalry abound. He's also taken us to the highways and to the public roads of the ancient Near East, uh, where danger uh, looms. Uh, He's taken us to the palace where even the king must learn the painful truth that he is expendable uh, and that his popularity and his fame are very precarious and, and short-lived. And then beginning in chapter 5, Solomon takes us to the temple in Jerusalem. He refers to it in verse 1 as the house of God, and basically says that there is a futility, there is a vanity that is sometimes even manifested in that place when worshipers are mechanical in, in what they say and in what they, what they do when they approach worship lightly, uh, when they uh, express uh, a uh, a sort of a a blind hypocrisy, uh, when they are too concerned about talking and voicing their opinions, uh, not concerned enough about listening and learning, when they make promises and pledges and delay fulfilling their their pledges and their vows or in some cases even deny making, making them, uh, when they fail to fear God, to be concerned about uh, what offends God, to be concerned about what pleases Him and to be eager to do what, what pleases Him, and when they fail to take the Lord seriously. Nevertheless, and we talked about all those things last week, especially regarding, over the last couple of weeks, regarding worship and, and that activity of going to the temple, uh, as of course, in Solomon's context. Uh, and yet, the temple seems to be the right place to go so so it's it's as if you're he's giving all these examples and you're like okay this makes sense he's sort of starting out there talking about the courtroom and talking about the palace but then he he kind of starts working his way in he's talking about the the marketplace and then he's talking about general travel I mean this the dangers of travel would have been just a common experience for every person um, and then he kind of Comes to this point where now we're talking about going to the temple. Uh, so now we're talking about something that's extremely, if you will, extremely personal. And so even though he he talks about uh, the problems with that, the 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 vanity that can be associated sometimes with with our worship, it still seems like that we're we're headed in the right direction, right? Like like this is where we ought to end up. We ought to end up at that at that place where we encounter God. Um, And, and of course, in the Old Testament, or for the Old Testament believer, this is the place where they would bring sacrifices. This would be the place where they would offer their prayers and make their commitments and and, and praise God for his his deliverance. And yet, in verse 8, it's as if Solomon escorts us out the doors of the temple and back out into the world... And the question is, what do we find? So it's it's like he's taken us from out there, kind of brought us into the temple, and then it's as if we're, okay, well, instead of staying there, we're going back out, and it's as if we're standing on the doorstep of the temple looking back out at the world. And what we find when we go back out after we've gone in and worshipped, when we go back out, what we find is the fact that things... Under, or we might say things in this under-the-sun world haven't changed very much. <laughs> in other words, it's, it's kind of just like it was before we went into the temple to worship. Evil still remains, abuses among rich and poor, misuses of money, strained relationships, calamities, foolish leadership, all these things keep sort of kicking us in the shins <laughs> as we leave worship. So I think this, this is just something, almost sort of parenthetically, but I think it's important for us to kind of understand as we've sort of walked through these, uh, these, uh, these chapters, like I said specifically that towards the end of chapter 3 and up to where we are at this point, uh, that it's important for us to sort of grasp that even if we are careful, even if we are cautious, even if we are sincere and, and we're humble, when we worship God that doesn't mean that we have an immunity. Um, that doesn't mean that we're exempt from the evil that remains under the sun. So it's like we go and we have this experience, and let's just be honest. I mean, if we brought it up to where we are today, it's, it, we come to church, we, we come to worship, and it's as if, you know, we have this great experience, right? We worship God, I mean, things are so wonderful, and then we go back out and we see all of the futility, and we see all the vanity, and we we're wrestling with these things just like we were before we came to worship, right? Um, it, it made me think of Lazarus. Think about this for a minute, okay? Uh, you know the story of Lazarus. It's recorded in John chapter 11. Lazarus was sick. I mean, the, the, sort of the, the, the gist of it is he's sick. Uh, he eventually dies. He's dead for four days he's buried in the tomb and then Jesus goes and performs this miracle to prove he's the resurrection and the life. He goes to the to the tomb. He says Lazarus come forth and, and Lazarus comes back to life. Okay? So we we, we see that so that there's a lot lot of details about how that unfolds so that it's just unmistakable that this is a miracle. This 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 is uh, something that uh, speaks to the deity and, and the power of Of Christ to do this, but what's interesting is that in chapter 12 in John, in verse 10, the Bible says that the chief priests uh, not only were plotting to kill Jesus, but that they were. And it says this in the text that they also were planning to put Lazarus to death as well. (laughs) And I just think, man, talk about a difficult transition. (laughs) I mean, Lazarus is doing his thing. He dies, okay, four days later, the Lord brings him back. And I just wonder, what, what were Lazarus' expectations when he came out of the tomb? Like, was he expecting, okay, I mean, he, he, back to life, there's Christ. Like, I wonder if he's just looking around and and noticing, is there anything, like, majorly different? Like, or is the kingdom come? I mean, what's going on? And it's pretty much the same place that he left, right? In fact, we would say this it not only didn't change a whole lot, it actually got worse. Because before this, we have no indication that there were any death threats (laughs) against him. Now he enters back into this thing, and and the chief priests are trying to plot as to how they might take his life. So uh, in a very similar way, I guess, uh, we are going to leave the mountaintop and go back into the valley again. Um, evil remains, and yet God tells us that He is with us in the world and in the valley. That He is He is in the everyday stuff of life. He He is in we might even say the mundane things of life. So in that monot- monotony and in that repetition and those things that we. We see them, we observe them, we go to worship, we go back out into the world, we keep seeing them to just realize that God is in all of that, right? And as we'll see at the end of this chapter, uh, God possesses a power that he gives to his people to enjoy him and to enjoy his gifts and embrace his plan for us. So this morning we're going to deal with a subject that I think every one of us thinks about often, uh, most likely on a daily basis, and it's the issue of money. So uh, I I actually was thinking this week, I I was just in my, you know, and it's one of those don't think about the pink elephant in the room, you know, kind of deals. But I was trying to in a sort of pay attention to what I was thinking about this week and if I was thinking about money and everyday folks. I mean, I mean, I, I, I think that would be true of, especially I would say most of the men. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that you're not thinking about Money about your checking account, about your your, your investments, about um, paying this bill or whatever. I mean, these things are just constantly going on your uh, uh, go, going around in your mind. So it's something that's very it's very relevant. Um, it's also very timely that we talk about this because a Gallup poll came out, I think, a few weeks ago that said that the average American adult is planning to spend $830 on Christmas gifts this year, which is the most since the, was it 2007? I think it was the dive. Yeah, so this is the most since 2007. It's been, been sort of a steady climb. Um, so, listen, hey, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, they're upon us, right? Now, you know me, based on last week, I'm just going to watch the people. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Cyber Monday, that'd be difficult, but... Black Friday, just kind of seeing what's going on, but some of you are gearing up for those things, Um, and it's already—I mean, it's already unfolding. I mean, it's just—it's just—it's just just, you can feel the ramp up, right? Um, We obviously live in a very materialistic culture. In fact, Randy uh, Cook this week, we were in the office, and and Mark uh, Indigno was in the office, and Randy was having this conversation with Mark about sort of preparing him for this 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 next wave of culture shock <laughs> he was just sort of like describing to him he, he kind of started with the thanksgiving and, and and Mark was really interested you know the whole thanksgiving what, what is this and and then the difference you know Randy was trying to make this transition of you know this is sort of the Thanksgiving thing, but then very quickly in fact in fact you 'd think that the Thanksgiving thing just sort of got run over you know by the Christmas thing, and he was trying to just explain to mark like you 're going to see something here. In the next couple of weeks, it's going to absolutely blow your mind. I mean, at the at the, the the level of consumerism, uh, this this emphasis on material things. So, from every direction, there there are numerous things that are constantly encouraging us to adopt an unbiblical view of money and wealth. Uh, we have the lottery. We have the person in our life that loves to show off their most recent. You know, acquisition. Uh, we have displays at the malls, billboards, commercials, mail catalogs, emails, web web advertisements. I mean, my computer's getting to the point; it, it's at a certain age where it, I just I can't go out onto the web without having one of those things just constantly in the way. You know, and it's taking and it's it's trying to figure out where you're going and where you've been. And I got a little ad that popped up that said. Um, you know, something about Faith Baptist Church in Lafayette, Indiana. You know, because I had gone out to their bookstore and bought some books and this big things in the center of the screen inviting me to a church in Indiana. <laughs> I was like I can't make it. It's just it's a little too far. <laughs> but it's like it they're it's just coming at you and sometimes you can't it's hard to get those things off of there. But anyway, any any favorites, you guys got any favorites? Any commercials? Any any ads or just stick out? You know, the Old Spice, and, you know, I mean, who would have thought Old Spice would be that, you know, I thought Old Spice was dead, right, and, and now all of a sudden it's, uh, it's, it's older, yeah, older Spice. Uh, Geico, Xfinity, Apple, GoPro, Jeep, Star Wars, I mean, it's just, it's just keeps coming, keeps coming. Mar- marketers attempting to make us discontent, right, that's what they do. They're trying to make us discontent with what we have. Using images stories, jingles to get us to focus on their brand in fact nike had a, has a had a sales strategy um, that they would introduce their strategy was they're going to introduce a new style or color of, of of athletic shoe every six weeks in order to keep people wanting That was their strategy. We just have to keep just constantly i mean and, and you you see this if you're out in, in athletic stores i mean the, the turnover in shoe styles is like. I mean, it's before you can get in there. I mean, they're, they're they're gone, and the next one's out, right? And so that's what they do. And and we fall into it, right? Because we want more. Uh, we want a, a more of this and a better that. Um, in fact, it takes me back to Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> <laughs> if I were a rich man. <laughs> <laughs> Doddle-deedle-doddle-doddle-doddle-deedle-doddle-dum. All day long, I'll biddy biddy bum if I were a wealthy man. Okay, so if you have no idea what that is, your assignment between now and the end of the year is to watch Fiddler on the Roof, okay? So, Tevye. All right. So the question is, how much is enough? What would it take to make you to fill you with blessing, to to make you happy, to settle your heart with contentment? Well, let's see what Ecclesiastes says what what Solomon has to say here about money and how that applies to you and to me. Pick up here in verse 8. He says, "'If you see oppression of the poor "'and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, "'do not be shocked at the sight, "'for one official watches over another official, "'and there are higher officials over them. "'After all, a king who cultivates the field "'is an advantage to the land. "'He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, "'nor he who loves abundance with its income. "'This, too, is, is vanity.'" When good things increase, those who consume consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then, he, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and danger. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied. With the gladness of his heart. So first Solomon talks about the vanity of materialism. Uh, it gives you the, the the you might say the detrimental effects of making it your ambition to, to get wealth and riches. And then Solomon gives you the the option of measuring your worth from a godly perspective. So, what does he say about riches and wealth? I just want to give you three three things here. Uh. First of all, when you he says that when you are driven by material things, when you are consumed with money, your life will be filled with injustice. Your life will be filled with injustice. And so he starts out here in verse 8, if you see, see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be shocked at the sight. So he's just saying don't don't be surprised, don't be surprised that the rich oppress the poor. The reality is that those who are wealthy most often have the power, and they are the ones who become our leaders more often than not. Uh, they are the ones that own the most land. They, are, they have the better educations. Uh, they are the politicians and the lawmakers. They, they own the buildings and run the companies, and so most of our leaders have money, and many of them are consumed with it they're 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 motivated by it they're driven by money and not only that but Solomon says here that every level of government is taking something from the level below and so people are trying to squeeze some sort of revenue out of the people that are are under them and so we talked about this word is is the term for uh, he used back when he talked about guarding your steps as you go to the house of God, that it's the same idea of of sort of uh, uh, looking at or, or observing or, or watching carefully. That's what these people are doing. They're at different levels, but they're all concerned about what everybody else is doing, and they're making sure that they squeeze something out of the guy underneath them and that as it comes to them that they keep a little bit because guess what's going to happen? Whatever comes to them, part of that's going to get squeezed, right from them, and it's going to make its way up the chain, and so everybody's sort of consumed with that uh, whole cycle, and so Solomon says, we shouldn't be surprised when people in authority abuse their power, and eventually, injustice reaches all the way down to the poor, who would probably oppress someone if they could, (laughs) So it's not as if the people that are down at the bottom of this chain would not also have this in their hearts, right? Would not have this desire or this drive. It's just simply the fact that they can't do that because they're at the bottom. And notice here that what Solomon doesn't say is Solomon doesn't say that government is the problem. Because right? we read these passages and let's say that's the problem. What the problem is government. Well, he doesn't say that. In fact, we know from... Other places in Scripture, God is the one that established authority, and, and, and we might even say that organized government is better than anarchy, right? So he doesn't say that government's the problem, and he doesn't even say that the fact that some have more than others, that that's not necessarily the problem. The problem, he says, is the presence of, of covetousness and a, an absence of justice or an absence of righteousness, so the rich, without a biblical ethic, constantly take advantage of the poor. This, this is what goes on. We see it, we see it every day, in our world. Uh, the poor are out, are outmatched. Uh, or we could say, si- simply put, it's hard for them to beat the system. It's hard for those at the bottom to to fight against and, and to succeed against the the bureaucracy. Now that being said, even the king is not autonomous. Right? He is he is dependent on the land. And let's not forget that we do receive benefits uh, on occasion from those who are in charge. So it's even though there are abuses and even though there are times when those in leadership oppress those that are under them, yet there are also benefits at times that also trickle their way down. But here's the point. This is Solomon's point, I think, that when money abounds, injustice is present. That there's, there's a connection between those things, and this is something that we have to, let's say, necessarily just accept it like it's not a big deal, but I'm saying this is, this is the way it is, right? I mean, that's what Solomon's been doing here for five chapters is just saying this is the world that we live in, uh, where, where there is money and where money abounds, injustice, injustice is going to be present, and this will be the case until Christ returns. Right, Isaiah nine says this, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government and of, of peace or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this so it's it's not government per se and it's not even the fact that there people have different things and of different amounts of things the problem is that that we're dealing with again the curse of sin and we're dealing with the reality that those men those people that are in leadership in, in any government structure those men are they have depraved hearts. <laughs> We're talking about human depravity and the way that that plays out on a sort of a national scale. Now, Solomon isn't just addressing the problem of wealth and prosperity on a national scale. He, he gets much more uh, personal than that, and it's, again, very similar. He's been doing this. I mean, Sol- the last thing Solomon wants us to do is to read this book and, again, to go, yeah, I understand that that's what's going on in those people's lives, <laughs> Right? I mean, Solomon wants us to to wrestle with this in our own hearts, right? He doesn't want us, we talked about the last couple of weeks, he doesn't want us to think about those other people that come to worship with hypocrisy in their lives. He wants us to think about the hypocrisy in our lives <laughs> as we come to worship. The same is true here. He doesn't want us to look back at our government or this, or, or the economic structures or the uh, political structures of our society and say yeah that 's the problem. The problem is that this all this money is flowing and there 's all this corruption and all this sin he wants he wants us to to wrestle with the fact that this is going on in our hearts. This is a battle that we face. we can be just as consumed with money, and so this sort of leads us to our second uh principle here regarding material things and and um prosperity and riches and that is this that when you are consumed with money your life will be filled with indigestion okay if you're consumed and driven by money your life will be filled with injustice if you're consumed with money your life will be filled with indigestion now why is that well for starters money will never satisfy right it will never satisfy again this is a great verse to put on the on the dashboard of your car or on, on your, your rear-view mirror so that you can read it on the way to your job. For those of you who go to work every morning, verse 10, he who loves, and that's the key. So you notice the word love, it's not possess. It's not he who possesses money. Possessing money is not, not a problem. It's he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. So Solomon says, listen, some people treat money as if it were a god. Um, They love it. They make sacrifices for it. They they think it can do anything. Their minds are filled with thoughts about it. Their their lives are are dominated and controlled by getting it and by guarding it. And when they have it, they they experience a great sense of safety and protection. It's It's an idol. In other words, they're looking to to material things to do what only God says he'll do. God is our refuge. God is our strength. God is our portion, uh, our deliverer, and yet people are viewing their material things in that way. Solomon says, If you are driven by money, you can expect to have an unsatisfied appetite because human covetousness cannot be satisfied. Uh, john uh, Ro- uh, D Rockefeller was once asked, "What was your favorite million to make?" and he replied, "The next million <laughs> the next million so there's there's never uh, just a little bit more basically so this chasing after money and, and it 's not just about it 's not just simply about spending power right it's it's the fact that with with having material things and with having Riches and money—it's—it's it's also about the acclamation, right? It's also about the—the—the the, uh, the pride, uh, the influence that comes with having those things. Solomon says, "The next dollar is never enough." In fact, I thought about this. Everything that we buy—you know—you have these. You're going to go out. You're going to maybe buy some gifts for somebody, and you might buy one. Sometimes the—the the packaging will say. You know, batteries not included, or some of them. And you have parents, and you have children. Be wary of the one that says some assembly required. Right? <laughs> it's a ton. You should just say a ton of assembly required. <laughs> right? So we have these little labels, little disclaimers up. Oh, batteries not included. Uh, some assembly required. We need to put a label on on these things that says this: satisfaction sold separately. Right because that thing is never going to satisfy. You're going to go out there on this hunt. If you have children, you're going to be looking for that that thing, you know, and you might already be sort of listening out with your kid. What is it that they're talking about? What is it that they're interested in? You know, you're trying to pick up on these things, but I'm just going to tell you, you're going to get it, And I and I'm telling you, next Christmas, right? <laughs> I mean, that is old stuff, right? Now, occasionally, occasionally you do, you know, Hit a good one where they, they it lingers right. I mean they hang on to this thing for uh, for much longer than that. But these things do not they do not satisfy. Uh, Charles Bridges said this. He says that when our desires are running ahead of our needs, it is better for us to sit down content where we are than where we hope to be in the delusion of our insatiable desire. <laughs> it's like when 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 your desires are outrunning your needs. It's better for you to just settle down, right? Just don't don't get carried away. Sit down content right where you are rather than where you hope to be in the delusion of your insatiable desire. Now, how do you know if you love money? How do you know if you are in love with money? Just two simple, practical questions. One that would be pretty obvious is do you spend it all on yourself? <laughs> I mean... Just look at what you purchase, what you buy, what are, who are you buying it for? Where, where is your money going? And then maybe one that's probably a little bit more telling is how much do you give away? How much do you give away? How much do you give to the Lord's work? How often do you see a need and, and, and step in to meet that need? Because the reality is sometimes these, you know, we see needs and, and we keep telling ourselves that someone else is going to take care of that need. And, and the Lord is saying, no, if you have the means to take to meet a need, then, then meet a need. <laughs> Just meet the need. Don't assume that somebody else can do that. In fact, First Timothy chapter 6, Paul says this, that we are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And that's if we want to really experience life, what is truly life then we're to do those things, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, ready to meet needs. So money will never satisfy. Then in verse 11, Solomon says money does not solve every problem. When good things, he says in verse 11, increase, those who consume them increase, so what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? Now there's no escaping the fact that we need some money we we all need a certain amount of money in order in order to live right in, in this world but money of its in and of itself isn't the magic cure cure all for every problem in fact money often creates more problems than it solves for example an increase in wealth demands more management right so the more that you have the more that you have to take care of now if you were involved in some sort of business, it might look like this: As your, as your business begins to, to, to grow, right, and, and, and you begin to have uh, make more money and make more profits, well then along with that increase comes increased responsibility in growing the business. And so you, you start to, you're, you're making all this money, and then all of a sudden you realize that you've got to start channeling those profits back into the growth of the business by adding equipment. Or you've got to add personnel, employees, and then you've got to now and offer employee benefits, increased marketing, building expansion, all those things. So you see that play out sometimes just in the, in, in, in people's lives that, that are self-employed or who are, are business owners. We have this situation in our, in our own church. We have a number of men that have their own businesses. And I'm sure it's a challenge for them because they they do well and then it seems like they get to this certain point where they have to make a decision. (laughs) Am I just going to be right here and content with where I'm at or am I going to go to that next level? But they know that to go to that next level, it's going to require a ton of investment and their profits are going to really shrink for some time. Uh, And the question is, will it pay off? Right? The reality is that as they make more, there's a greater responsibility. And sometimes they have to Figure out they have to wrestle with some pretty difficult questions, as far as their their businesses are concerned, and where are they going to draw that line? More explicitly, Solomon says that an increase in wealth attracts more parasites. Right. So there's with more increase in money, there's more responsibility, but there's also more um, there's more people sort of attaching themselves. Okay, and we're not just talking about the IRS. Now, That is certainly true. I mean, the, as we make more money, they, they're interested, right? I mean, they want they want to know what we're making, and they tend to take more. But that's not what we're talking about. In fact, Proverbs nineteen verse seven says this: "All the brothers of a poor man hate him, but but much more do his friends abandon him. How much how much more do his friends abandon him? He pursues them with words, but they are gone. So here's a poor man. He's he is." trying to engage and go after his his friends and his relatives, but he doesn't have anything, and so they run, right? That's in contrast to what the proverb says in that very same chapter, Proverbs 19. In verse 4, he says this, wealth adds many friends. Wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. Verse 6, many will seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to, to him who gives gifts. <laughs> so it's it's not really anything new. I mean Solomon's I mean this this is this these are things that are again we see, we see these things very common dynamic that relatives and friends start showing up and enjoying our hospitality, right? Hey hey buddy, can you loan me this? Can you loan me that? Can I borrow your truck and You know, you get a truck, guys, you'll find out. Yeah, (laughs) can I borrow your truck? And I don't get asked very often, but that used to be a joke in our church because at one point when our church was much smaller, we didn't have a lot of guys that had a truck. But if you had one, then it was, hey, it was that, you know, hey, can I borrow your truck? I'm moving this Saturday. And no, do you have anything going on Saturday? Because I could also, you know, do you have a dolly? (laughs) You know, so you realize that, do I say yes? (laughs) So people want to do this. This is just what happens. And in that sense, m- money can complicate your life. It, it affects relationships. And it does this on both sides. So if you have money, people are drawn to you somewhat sometimes because you have it. And then occasionally we might even be guilty of gravitating to others who have it, right? So sometimes we might, you know, I mean, maybe you've had that thought, hey, let's see if the so-and-sos want to go to dinner because they might, maybe they'll offer to pay for it if we go with the so-and-sos, Right. So I'm just saying, it, 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 that may not be in your experience, but I'm saying this, is, this, this stuff's going on. It's, it's very common for people to think through their relationships through a monetary lens, right? So this can lead to frustration. As soon as you have money, suddenly the letters come. You're on everybody's Christmas list. Uh, you're on the donor list. to to, to organizations. Solomon is saying, listen, do not build your relationships on money. Do not build your relationships on money. Look for people that you can give to, not those that you can get from. So money will never satisfy. Money doesn't solve every problem. And then he says this, money will not supply peace and rest. So the indigestion progresses here. Verse 12, The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. So money doesn't bring peace of mind. In fact, in many ways, it disturbs our peace, right? It disturbs our peace. I mean, this is the American dream, right? Get there and lie awake at night suffering with indigestion, right? Because we, we've achieved it, we have all these things, but now we're worried about all these things because riches brings a, a certain level of anxiety. It brings a certain amount of fear, worrying about how to take care of your stuff. A riches brings insomnia and restlessness. It's interesting here because the word for, that in verse 12, that, that the term full stomach comes from the same root, root as the word for, back in verse 10, the word for Satisfied. So it's kind of this, it's, it's, this, it's, it's as if he's saying there is, there is a certain amount for the rich man, there is a certain amount of satisfaction, but not really. Because he's full, he has a full stomach, but based on what it says in verse 10, there's no real lasting satisfaction. It's amazing how the, the rich sometimes worry more than the poor. There are those who could buy anything that they want, but but they're absolutely miserable. So Solomon says, Labor may bring sleep, but wealth brings sleeplessness and the fear that a blunder may result in the loss of everything. And wealth is no guarantee that your nerves will be calm and your sleep will be sound. You could summarize verses eleven and twelve this way More money, more people. More people, more worries more worries, less sleep. If you kind of put it put it all together. So, when you're consumed with money, your life will be filled with injustice, your life will be filled with indigestion, heartburn. Thirdly, he says when you are consumed with money, your life will be filled with insecurity. Now, how is that? Well, because he says riches can disappear. I mean like like that, right? They are uncertain and brief, verse 13. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered to son, there was nothing to support him. So there are sort of two two images here. The one is of this hoarder, uh, this this image of a hoarder, the, the miser, the, the scrooge, the, the penny pincher, uh, the one who loves to make money but hates to spend it the one who loves to make money but hates to give it away. Solomon says this is a tragic fact. When a person begins to think of himself as an owner and not as a steward, right? He's he's got all these things, but he forgets that all these things belong to God, right? And so he's holding these things. He's, He's keeping these things to himself. So there's this sort of picture of a guy doing that, this hoarder, and then this this additional image is one of a foolish risk taker, a man who loses everything through a foolish investment, who doesn't have anything to pass down to his children. So So sometimes it's an accident, sometimes it's speculation, but the truth remains, riches can disappear in a minute. The other reason why Solomon says that materialism leads to insecurity is because riches will not survive death. They won't survive death, even though you will. Verse 15, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came? He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. So the, the, the language here, especially verse 15, it's very familiar. It's familiar to anyone who knows the story of Job. When Job had lost everything, um, that he, nearly everything that he had, he said this in Job 1.21, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, the Apostle Paul takes this same truth and applies it to all of us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. He says, For we have brought nothing into the world, So we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So we're going to leave it all behind. The the, the homes, the video games, the toys, the clothes, the cars, the computers, the golf clubs. Uh, Riches don't help you avoid death. And everyone must return to their maker. So many people are suffering from what you might call destination sickness. Arriving at where they always wanted to be, having everything they always wanted to have, but not wanting anything they've got always wanted to get there, always always wanted to have those things, and then when they actually get there and they actually have those things, they don't want any of it. They're isolated, burdened down with cares, physically run down, angered by the frustration of ambitions, and in the end, they must give it all up. So riches can deceive you. They, they won't last. They don't last. You do not emerge from the womb with with Nike running shoes on and an outfit from Old Navy on. Uh, you, you you're not born with a Macy's shopping bag on your arm. And, and unless you invest in eternal things, unless you invest in the bank of heaven, you will go out of life with a zero balance. Lay up treasure in heaven. We we see it that at admonition. At least I can think of at least three times in the New Testament. Lay up treasure in heaven. You you think about this. What what is the only thing in this life that will be with us in the next life? From this world, the only thing that's go, people. That's right. So if you want to talk about laying up treasures in heaven, I think one of the most obvious ways of thinking about that is invest in people, right? not material things. Focus on relationships. Focus on the task of making disciples because the only thing in this life that will be with us in the next are saved souls, right? Now, again, keep in mind Solomon's not advocating one or the other. Now, he's not advocating riches. He's not advocating poverty. Both of these things have their own problems. And verse 19 makes it clear that the problem doesn't rest with wealth itself, Solomon is simply warning us against the love of money and the delusions that wealth can bring. So what is the other alternative? What if you lived your life different than that? What what if you measured your worth according to God's standards? Uh, Verses 8 to 17 are, are an obvious display of foolish living, but how can we be wise when it comes to money and material things? And we see this in the final verses here of the chapter beginning in verse eight, 18, here is what I've seen to be good and fitting. This is good. This is fitting to eat, to drink and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him. We've talked about this concept before. It's not just about recognizing the gifts of God. It's recognizing that It's a gift to be able to enjoy the gifts of God. So God is the one that empowers us to eat from these things, to receive our reward and to rejoice in our labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. What is he saying? He's simply saying this. Enjoyment doesn't come from our work our sustenance, our homes, our companionship, our popularity or fame, the approval or admiration of others or going through some religious routine or some form of mechanical worship. Enjoyment comes from knowing God and accepting our lot, accepting our station in life and laboring faithfully, right? So that thing that God, God is... Put you in that place. He's given you this assignment. You have these God given responsibilities. You're saying, be faithful. Be faithful in those things. You, you, you don't get enjoyment uh, by worshiping God's gifts. And you certainly don't want to complain about God's gifts or hoard God's gifts, right? But enjoyment comes by, by receiving everything from God's hand with thanksgiving whether pain or pleasure, not by looking back with sorrow on the past, but by savoring life in the present, day by day, moment by moment. I mean, I I thought about this. Have you you ever known a person like that? A, A person that has had, from your estimation, a person that has had a full life, but they seldom talk about the past because they're so richly involved with savoring life right now. I mean, I could I immediately, last night. I was, I could think of a couple people in our church that I know have I mean, they've got a lot to tell. They've got a lot to say about their past, and it's good stuff. They just don't talk a lot about it. It's not because it's, it was terrible, and it's not because it was really, really good. It's just they're so caught up in the moment <laughs> of just enjoying God and enjoying God's gifts, savoring life right now. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, and, and like I said, it can be, it can be bad things, right? I mean, it can be regrets, but I don't think that's necessarily what he's saying. I don't think he's talking about necessarily going back and wallowing in 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 mistakes. I think he's just saying that it's it's a focus on serving God, loving God, enjoying God in the moment, taking every day as it comes and using it to serve the Lord, finding pleasure in the simple things. So maybe you're single, maybe you're married, maybe you feel sidelined, maybe you're growing older, you're, you're more alone than you ever thought that you would be. God, God is there, and God gives contentment to you as a gift. So don't allow the smokescreen of more money to blind your eyes to the truth. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Be consumed with God and not money, and you will find contentment. Or as Matthew 6, Jesus said this in verse 33, Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Relatively speaking, folks, we're all rich. By the way, just don't, don't let that escape you. As we're talking about riches, don't go, oh, but I'm not rich. Yeah, you are. Relatively speaking, I mean, in, in, in biblical terminology, if you have clothing, food, and shelter, if you have anything beyond that, you're rich. So we're all rich. And the question is this, what is the focus of your life? Are you in love with your money and your stuff, or are you in love with Christ? Are you always bringing up the difficulties of life? Or are you intent on enjoying whatever you have been given by God? And remember, especially as we go into this holiday season and even this week, um, this futility and this striving after wind, these things are going on all around us. (laughs) People are trying to make sense out of life. Our friends, our neighbors, our family members, those who have made poor business decisions, who've gambled their money away, who've lost their retirement, who've been swindled out of their money, those with no financial means to help their children, those with no financial security, those with no fruit to enjoy from the work that they do every day, how do they discern God when every day vexes and sickens and embitters them? I'm saying, you can help them. You can help them. So, I mean, the opportunity's there. I mean, the this futility, it's all around us. So let's just pay attention, right? I mean, there's lots of people in our lives that are experiencing the meaninglessness of pursuing material things. And we can speak into that because why? Because we've been there. <laughs> we've been there. We've seen it. We've experienced it. And we need to do what we can do and trust God to do only what He can do. So. Hopefully that'll be that's some that's just some good, you know. Like I said it's it's it, I think it's very timely for us to think about those things. And um, we will be our family is going to be on the road. I don't know if you're what your plans are, but we're going to hit the road this week, and we'll actually be gone to Kentucky through the through the weekend. So I've got Tim Brown. Uh, Tim will be teaching next Sunday. Um, I think he's going to do something in James one. I'm hoping he'll share a little bit about his uh, trip, recent trip to Egypt. Uh, He went to Cairo and taught biblical counseling. Um, Just got back a few weeks ago from that trip, so I'm hoping he'll share a little bit about his experience there. Um, But he's going to sub in, and then the week following that, uh, we'll be back together, pick it up in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Okay? All right, folks, have have a happy Thanksgiving this week.